Hello and welcome to another episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry and today we'll be looking at one of my beloved horror films, the 1986 remake of The Fly. Directed by David Cronenberg and starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis and John Getz. Be afraid, be very afraid. This line famously uttered in this film by Gina Davis, which is now cemented in history as one of the most quotable lines in cinematic history. This is yet another example of a quote that may have surpassed a film, and what I mean by this is people who know or are familiar with this quote may not even know where this quote came from. It's just one of those quotes that echo through the history of Hollywood and just general pop culture. I mean, that line itself practically promoted the movie. The line was said to be invented by Mel Brooks while discussing how characters should react to the early stages of Jeff Goldblum's character in this movie. In case you're wondering how Mel Brooks is involved in this film, it's kind of like Paul Rudd being involved in The Exorcist or something. But um, it basically was a studio that financed this movie, which is quite interesting. Obviously, Mel Brooks is well known for comedies like Spaceballs and Blazing Saddles, and he was quite reluctant to let audiences know he was a producer for this grotesque movie because he thought people would just wouldn't take him seriously anymore um, if they knew that he was involved in The Fly. I mean, honestly, I'd be proud to be part of this movie. It's revolutionary. I mean, people watched this movie and felt sick. They even threw up during the preview screening of this movie, and they had to leave the theater. I mean, if I had to describe this movie in one word, it's gross it's absolutely gross this is just a bonkers monstrous movie i think this is the very definition of a coming to age monster flick executed in a no holds bar in terms of gore and not afraid to push the limits with the story and imagination of this mutation that happens throughout this movie i mentioned it was a remake and i'm strictly against the idea of remakes however if there was a list of all the best remakes ever made this movie would probably be number one and number two, I think, you know, thinking about it would probably be The Thing, John Carpenter's one that came out also in the 80s, and there's another monster movie. But yeah, I'd have to really sit down and think about that list. So The Fly, what is this film about? Well, you can probably take a guess. However, let me fill in some gaps for you. So we have Seth Grundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, who's this eccentric scientist who thinks he's figured out a way on how to teleport objects from one pod to another. So basically, he's figured out the secret to teleportation. So he's allowed Gina Davis, this reporter, to observe and then exploit his achievements in the hope of him becoming famous. He manages to demonstrate that these pods actually work and things can be teleported from one pod to another. However, it needs a few adjustments for a living organism to be tested. At the moment, he's just been teleporting inanimate objects. Now, upon, you know, figuring it out a little bit more, he finally makes a breakthrough and he successfully teleports living things. I think he does a baboon in this movie. And what he does next is he experiments on himself like most mad scientists do. But when he enters the pod to test it on himself, a fly is also inside. So without knowing the fly is inside as well, he successfully teleports him, or should I say them, to the other pod. Now after this, Seth is like a new man, but little does he know that he's been spliced with this fly. And he starts to change physically and mentally into this creature where we follow Seth through this journey of transformation. Transformation. The film explores the ideas and consequences of genetic fusion and what would happen if a human being has his genes fused with an insect on a genetic molecular level and how the genetic fusion of human and insects would affect that person as he gradually transforms into a you know, hideous mutant hybrid creature. It's highly interesting and it was one of the key selling points when the original film was made with Vincent Price back in... Um, 1957 1958 one of those dates the movie was selling audiences that this idea that this was the first movie in history showing a genetic mutation in a movie which was very big for the audiences back in the 50s 
the story in that version is however very different to the remake i mean at the at the start of the movie the mutant scientist is dead and it turns into more of an investigation on how or how did he die or why is he this sort of disfigured creature kind of thing um, and the story was buzzing around for a bit as well. I mean, excuse the pun, but I mean, the idea of it originally came from a short story way back in 1915 called The Metamorphosis, which tells the story of salesman Gregor, uh, Gregor Samsa, who wakes up one morning to find himself inexplicably transformed into a huge insect. They pay tribute to this with the very origin of the 1915 short story by using one of the lines in the 1986 version. And it's such a powerful metaphorical line. So the line goes like this. I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And this famous speech is going on about insect politics as how insects don't have politics, um, you know, and he's basically warning um, her that he's going to harm her if she doesn't leave. And it's just it's from the original 1915 short story. And they used it in the 1986 movie. And it's so good. It's so powerful. And Goldblum says this in the movie, realizing that the transformation has gone too far and that he's not a man anymore. He's getting to the final stages of becoming a fly. And it's so eerie, yet hard not to be engrossed in it. So this was written like in 1912 as an original short story first published in Playboy called, you know, The Fly by this British French writer, George Lagolin. And the year after that, then they made the, um, the, the Vincent Price movie. And it had like two sequels, like Curse of the Fly and Return of the Fly um, or something like that. I think Vincent Price reprised his role in one of them. He doesn't even play the fly in it. He's the guy trying to figure out what they all happened here. And then we jump 30 years and we have, you know, our movie, the David Cronenberg one, one, which for me is the best adaptation of this story yet. Even this movie spawned a sequel. Um, It was like three or four years later. I think it was just the one which had Eric Stoles in it. He's the, um, the redhead in Pulp Fiction. And the story was even expanded into opera called by the same name, The Fly, and it came out in 2008. It's because the music in the 1986 movie was so operatic and almost over-the-top, but it worked. It was very theatrical, but at the same time, it wasn't cheesy, so that's why it's a very classic horror movie for a film made in the 80s. And it still manages to bring in what, you know, what some would classify, classify as sort of uh, cheesy cliches, but... Rather, it works really well in this movie because the fly is just ridiculous in terms of what they get away with doing in the movie. I mean, no one had seen anything like this. And the music really emphasizes the level of shock and amazement to this movie. So we have David Cronenberg, who, who directed this movie. Um, and I don't think many people know his films too well. I think, I mean, I think this was his sort of big film. He did a movie, uh, History of Violence, with Viggo Mortensen. And he's worked, with, uh, he's worked with Robert Patterson a few times recently, Cosmopolis and Map to the Stars. Really good movies. Very arty, though. But he's very well known for um, his earlier films in the 80s, like Scanners and Dead Ringers and, of course, The Fly. And he has a fascination of his stories and how to really bring in, you know, this sort of shock audiences with his um, blunt interpretations of realism and Vision 2. He did a film called Crash in 1998, not the Oscar-winning film, um, it was another film, and it had James Spader in it, and it's about these people, this society, this cult even, and they're, like, sexually aroused by their vehicles, and it's just bizarre, but it's a really interesting film. But this sort of gives you an idea of his mindset, or better yet, his imagination. 
He single-handedly pioneered the body horror genre that involves mutations, parasites, or particular medical conditions, which is the fly. He demonstrates really expressively in this movie. He even makes a brief cameo in this movie as the gynecologist, which was uh, Gina Davis's idea. Another really cool cameo in this movie is Martin Scorsese, who is the doctor in this movie. He's a really big fan of David Cronenberg and decided to do a little small part. And if you watch it, you'll probably spot him. Well, I won't tell you when, but you know, you'll see him. So when this film came out, it was massive. It was thriving as this up-and-coming horror movie with these sort of dazzling effects that haven't been seen before. And I read that Aliens, James Cameron's Aliens, the sequel to the Ridley Scott one, had just come out about the same time as The Fly. And they were at the cinema roughly about the same time. And they were doing a double bill with both of these movies, and it sold a lot of tickets. You know, nowadays we don't really have this double bill or grindhouse or back-to-back movies just because people don't really have interest in it anymore, mainly due to, you know, streaming services like Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime. It's kind of sad, really. I mean, I went to one double bill a long time ago, a long time ago, and it's really quite the experience. I mean, they go all out for it, and then they introduce these really cool trailers in between the two movies that no one's ever seen, and that's part of the sort of charm of it as well. But you really must want to go and have a love for it if you prefer, if you'd like really want to enjoy the experience. So I'll talk a little bit more about the depth of this horror movie. I mean, David Cronenberg didn't see this movie as a horror movie at all, but more of a metaphorical, you know, movie for aging. Seth's sort of continuing transformation highlighting the fact that time makes us hideous monsters of all of us. On the other hand, Veronica represents anyone who's ever suffered the heartbreak of watching an elderly relative become a shadow of their former self, you know, reaching that point of severe physical decline or losing their senses or ability. I mean, the film offers more than one hidden meaning, which still kind of resonates today. Originally, the, re- uh, the director did this movie as kind of a metaphor for aging, like I just said, but as production went on, it sort of became a metaphor for terminal illness as well. And you can see why Jeff Goldblum goes through an awful ordeal in this movie, physically and sometimes mentally in this movie as it goes on and his body's experiencing pain and hurt and change much like terminal illnesses and the main consensus with people and critics and audiences that went to see this film was that Cronenberg had made this movie as an evident reference to AIDS Because before he gets this sort of super strength at the start, he starts to physically deteriorate. And one of the early symptoms is um, lesions on his face, which, of course, is a skin condition for HIV. And this film came out in 1986. This is sort of during the middle of the pandemic of this deadly virus in the 80s of, um, of, of AIDS. And not to mention that the whole reason that this has happened to him is because he is interacted let's say with another species kind of hinting of the ab you know abnormality of this splice which sort of takes a jab at homosexuality but david cronenberg said look i didn't make this as a metaphor for aids but more for terminal illness like cancer he even told the makeup crew when applying the makeup to jeff goldblum to think of it as a form of cancer something his character even mentions in this movie and speaking of the makeup quickly i've got to say this i mean i was reading about this and apparently it took five hours to apply sort of the last stage transformation of Jeff Goldblum's makeup as the fly. Five hours. And if you've seen the images, you'll know why. And he was often wearing as much as five pounds of prosthetic makeup during those scenes. It was ridiculous, but it was very effective. But with these metaphors, I mean, they're obviously up for interpretation, but it's something that David Cronenberg usually thinks about when making his films. And most films are like this if you look closer. However, with this director specifically, he's almost like a movie critic who makes movies. He knows exactly what he's doing with this movie. He will add in those small lines that really mean something later on in the movie. He most definitely doesn't do things for the sake of it. I mean, there's a deeper meaning in everything he does, especially in this movie. 
I mean, this film is what I would call lean. It starts almost immediately. He's not beating around the bush here. We go straight into you know Seth telling Gina, look, I've got something worthwhile to see. I think the exact opening lines is, what am I working on? Um, I'm working on something that will change the world and human life as we know it. I mean, like like I was saying, how Cronenberg doesn't put anything there for the sake of it, that, that includes dialogue. And this opening line basically foreshadows the entirety of Seth's transformation in the movie. Even the music is something, you know, somewhat relevant to the story in a deeper meaning. I was reading that the first and last bar of the music is taken from Bacini's opera Madame Butterfly, which is probably a reference to the deleted scene in this movie. So they filmed the scene, but they deleted it. And it was a Veronica learns that she's pregnant when um, with Seth's baby while he was spliced with a fly. And she dreams of giving birth to a beautiful girl who has butterfly wings. It's a great and eerie scene, but they cut it because even though it was tame and nothing horrific about it, it was just really strange to see a baby with butterfly wings. But I thought it was very artsy and beautiful and an interesting image. So if you've got the Blu-ray of this movie or the DVD of it, check the deleted scene for it. It's really good. And you might even see Martin Scorsese's cameo there as well. And there was another dream sequence that they filmed but cut out the movie as well. And she gives birth and it's a cocoon and she's screaming and there's goo everywhere. And it's so disturbing. And it was so ahead of its time of what they could get away with. I mean, there's, I mean, there's no surprise it got deleted, but it's worth watching it if you've got the DVD. I mean, you've got other symbols if you really stretch your mind. Like, you know, there's a scene where Seth is rolling around and he, he catches the circuit board and he gets stuck on his back. Uh, his back. And he gets like a nasty cut on it. And it's just after he slept with Veronica for the first time. And it sort of foreshadows him being betrayed by his own technology. I mean, none of this would have happened if his computer would have functioned properly. And the main and obvious one, like I mentioned earlier, David Cronenberg's sort of vision is terminal illness. It's about a man who's suffering this, you know, this disease in a way, which accelerates to the point where he must beg his lover for euthanasia. Like I said, this movie is lean. Right after he begs her to shoot him, this movie ends. That's it. It's done. It starts quickly and it ends quickly. There's no beating around the bush, like I said, and I respect that. I mean, the journey is with Seth and the journey through his illness. And the second he dies, the movie is over. And I think there's a personal connection for Cronenberg when he did this movie. The line when Seth is like, am I dying? Is this how it feels like when I'm dying? Is this how it starts if I'm dying? And he specifically sets this scene in the bathroom because in reality, many people's first sign if they're ill or becoming very ill is in the privacy of their own bathroom. I mean, he does this again with Veronica when she learns she's pregnant. And it's not just this movie. Others have done it as well. But it's the attention to detail with this vision. And it just proves that Cronenberg is a genius at symbolism. And he really tries to protect, you know, sort of project the sympathy towards Seth's character through this cancer. You know, Seth's teeth start falling out. His skin's peeling off. The nails are coming off. He doesn't understand what's happening to him. It's a very clever way of portraying terminal illness in an artistic manner. And there is no doubt, you know, this is done by accident, that the telepods are shaped like wombs as well. I mean, the film is scattered with these imageries and symbolism, and it's something to look out for in the movie. And I think this is sort of the uh, career origin of Jeff Goldblum of this movie. I mean, that film really established him as a Hollywood A-lister, in my opinion. Fox, the studio, didn't actually want him in the first place because they thought he wasn't a bankable star. But it was Cronenberg who had his eyes set on him. Not only did Fox have an objection with Jeff Goldblum, but the makeup department had one because they didn't think his face would be, you know, compatible to do makeup. They thought it'd be very difficult because he's got kind of a big nose. So they, they were having problems with his face. But like you say, the rest is now history and Jeff Goldblum was casted. 
And a good side effect of this was Gina Davis, who was dating Jeff Goldblum at the time. And when uh, Jeff Goldblum finally got cast, he told Cronenberg, look, you should hire Gina for the role of Veronica. And David Cronenberg was very close to regretting his decision to cast in Goldblum because he didn't really want a real life couple playing, you know, an intimate couple on screen as well. So he auditioned her and he couldn't floor the performance. And he ended up, you know, auditioning other people. But Gina Davis ended up being the best suit for this character. But, you know, Jeff had some fun with Gina on set, this sort of banter. There's a scene where his ears fall off, but he didn't tell her about it. And neither did David Cronenberg. So when they shot the scene and his ears fall off, Gina Davis's expression is absolutely genuine. And that's the one that's kept in the movie. Jeff sort of established himself well in this movie and sort of carried on this stereotype as this sort of you know, this sort of intellectual, eccentric character. And he does this in upcoming movies, more noticeably in Jurassic Park, playing a mathematician, and Independence Day, playing someone who went to MIT. And he's really well established in Hollywood now. And I think this movie sort of exposed him to us as the audience. And it's quite interesting thing about Jeff's character and his others, actually. In this film, he specifically says, I have like four kinds of outfit, and they're exactly the same because he doesn't want to waste his time in the morning um, of what to wear, something apparently Einstein did. And in the Michael Crichton novel, Jurassic Park, the character he plays in the movie, Ian Malcolm, makes a comment about his style and says he only wears black. So I thought that was quite a cool link between the two characters he plays. And speaking of outfits, um, this is quite a cool fact, which I didn't know, actually. I read this. The outfit that he wears as in the fly is what inspired Rowan Atkinson to play Mr. Bean. So you'll actually notice that the outfit he wore um, in the first half of the movie is very similar to what Rowan Atkinson wears as Mr. Bean, which is quite cool. So look, I'll take a minute to talk about the generic stereotypes in this movie. One thing this movie plays heavily on is we know who the hero is or we know who the villain is or who we know who the psychic is. It's called the stock character. That's what movies do. Superhero movies do this really well. You have the damsel in distress. You have the hero, the psychic. You know these people. We are familiar with these certain types of characters. Now, what's interesting about this movie is that we're led to believe that Jeff Goldblum is the hero, Gina Davis the heroine, and this guy Staffus, played by John Getz, is this sort of creepy, unlikable guy. In fact, in an interview, he said, I took the role simply because my, my character is a stereotypical 80s yuppie villain, but ends up becoming the hero at the end when he tries to save Gina from the fly, who he thought was the hero. What Cronenberg is doing is basically saying that the human species here are the heroes, and what Seth has become is out of his control. So we are conflicted because we know he means well, but he has no control over this transformation. In the movie, it's clear we try to show sympathy for Jeff Goldblum's character, which isn't easy considering this fly has taken over him. And you're sort of rooting for him in a strange way to succeed, to get rid of this disease. However, this movie doesn't have a happy ending. And when the transformation is complete, he is a full fly. He's basically dead. Hence that really hard scene at the end when he forces the shotgun on himself and signifies to Veronica to kill him, symbolizing that the cancer has done its damage now. He can't turn around. I can't physically live on is what he's saying. And in this aspect, you know, Staffis becomes the hero by you know, trying to rescue her from the fly. The heroine is sympathetic towards the now villain of this movie. And what was the hero has now become the villain of this movie, but humanizes the audience with the act of euthanasia at the end. So Cronenberg has just turned what we know on stock characters on its head in this no-hold structure of this horror remake. Earlier when I said I don't like remakes, I meant it. But sometimes it's got to be done, right? The 1958 Vincent Price movie was almost screaming to be remade. It's very cartoonish. The costumes were laughable, even in the 50s. 
But what Cronenberg saw is if you strip away the comedy element of it and study the core story, which is metamorphism, it was really the perfect movie for, you know, for someone like him to tackle, who really molded this movie to become a classic in the horror, you know, the horror genre and really experimenting with this idea of transformation. I think another reason The Fly works well as, as a remake is that it's not really a horror movie, and the best horror movies are usually trying not to be. The cheap thrills you get in films like Paranormal, Paranormal Activity are the ones that won't stand the test of time. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm proving my point by even mentioning that film. I mean, no one's talking about that film anymore. Sometimes it's not what makes you jump, but what keeps you awake at night or stays with you for a few days. Those are the movies that are done well. Those are the true horror movies. This film is essentially a doomed love story. The situation is horrific. It's disgusting. It's gross. But you take all that away and you have a heartbreaking love story. The chemistry between Jeff and Gina really sells this tragic love story of love and separation. You see her fall in love, stand by her man through this difficult time, but also worrying by doing so it could be too much of a strain for her. She struggles and fights the idea of if she should put him out of his misery. I don't, and I'm sure you guys don't want to see a loved one in pain, and the end result in, this in these decisions are never easy. In this 1986 horror movie, we see both sides of the illness. It's extremely achievable to entertain our own experiences and pain into what we see on the big screen. And this, you know, is what I would say is the whole point of watching movies, is to really grip onto these experiences that these kind of movies allow you to have. But look, that's all I have time for with The Fly. It's a classic film. I love it. I consider it one of the best horror films ever made. It's gross. It's unnerving, but it's a masterpiece that grips you from start to finish. Now, if you want any updates on my upcoming podcast or just general film news, follow me on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, or lowercase or one word. And thank you for listening, and I hope you have a good day. <laughs>